Okay, I think we'll start. Welcome, everyone. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Paolo Drino. I help to organize these events. Um, and it's a real pleasure to introduce tonight's speaker, uh, Dr. Graham Daniel Willis, who is a university lecturer at the University of Cambridge, where he is based in both the Center of Development Studies and the Center of Latin American Studies. Uh, Graham has a PhD from MIT, and his uh, most recent publication, or at least uh, his, his, most, um, his, his monograph, was published in uh, 2015 by the University of California Press, and it's titled The Killing Consensus, Police, Organized Crime, and the Regulation of Life and Death in Urban Brazil. And uh, tonight, or this evening, he's speaking, I think, on a, on a new project, a project mm -hmm. that, that has evolved from this yes. initial project. So uh, over to you, Graham. Great. Thank you, Paulo, for the invitation. And uh, uh, it's nice to see plenty of people here. Um, what I'm going to talk about today is, uh, is essentially kind of a, a sequel uh, to what I uh, talked about in my book and the first bit of research that I did. So uh, that bit of research uh, was uh, three years following around homicide and other detectives in the city of Sao Paulo, Brazil, um, and I was very much interested in the practice of homicide investigation and what it could tell us about uh, the inequitable value of lives in Sao Paulo and also uh, about the influence of a certain organized crime group that exists in that city and how the two systems uh, come together in a sort of equilibria, um, which I talk about as a form of consensus, a form of consensus over who can live and who can die and who can carry out uh, the killing in ways that are assumed. Uh, so this project is something that, that came about um, right towards the end of that research. I started to see how new technologies were being used by not just citizens, but by police, uh, and trying to make sense of what does the use of technologies in tricky, difficult to think about types of ways by police, what does this tell us about politics, about, uh, about sovereignty, about violence as an ongoing experience in Brazilian cities? Um, great. So um, the image that I have up here is it's, it's a screenshot of a video. I'm not going to show the video. Um, but it's a video basically of something that has routinely happened in Brazilian cities for a very long time. It's a type of violence that is assumed, that is normal, uh, and that we don't necessarily talk about as much as we should. And there are reasons for that. It's institutionalized. Um, and there are other ways that it has become numb, mundane. Um, basically, it's one of many videos of an execution that police and others have circulated um, as, a, as a form of, of, uh, of politics what I'm going to argue today. So what I want to um, talk about is and discuss is how new, techno new technologies are shaping politics in Brazil, at least for the moment. Uh, some scholars have recently argued that the spread of new technologies globally uh, provides an unprecedented opportunity by providing citizens access to platforms and media that bypass traditional politics and other forms of governance. These technologies promise new political forms of contestation. At the heart of the matter is the idea of transparency. It's an ideal that, is, uh, that, that, has, that contains within it uh, the notion that the invisible must be made visible. 
those who control information, who retain the authority to make power and its practices invisible, need to be unmasked and exposed. In the sites of transparency is the real and obscured management of imageries. The inaccessibility of political spheres and the grip of zealous states and their police that consistently encroach on the rights and freedoms of citizens. Transparency is contained in a well-worn phrase, sunlight is the best disinfectant. New technologies, from apps on handheld devices to the platforms of prominent social media firms, promise what Larry Diamond has called liberation technology. Platforms like Facebook and Twitter pride themselves on accessibility as a foundational pillar. Anyone with an internet connection and access to a computer or handheld device is in that system. Moreover, anyone who wants to populate that platform can do so with very few constraints. Any reasonable content is allowed, and especially content that leads to a contestation of power. This is not an implied position. The high-profile leaders of Facebook, Google, and other firms actively trumpet accessibility and transparency as the basis of their public good. Annually, they release transparency reports. These reports provide basic data on how states are interacting with their content, uh, requesting data be removed, altered, or uh, provided to them. More importantly, leaders of these firms have actively taken vocal public positions against the ever-encroaching state and its recent search for a back door. In these platforms and their leaders have been, uh, if these platforms and their leaders have been vocal in advocating transparency, people in politics have followed suit, at least to some degree. We increasingly see new technologies being used in ways that seem to challenge the ways that citizens relate to states. Citizen journalism, or accidental journalism as it's called, the idea that anyone can document, circulate, and discuss is now widely accepted as a new reality. Everyone is watching all the time. No doubt this is important. In the United States, Citizen captured images of lethal police excesses against people like Walter Scott, Freddie Gray, and Eric Garner have pushed many into a new era of protest. Watching African American die, has, Africa, excuse me, watching African American men die has driven us to reassess long-held and assumed forms of violence that have otherwise been more or less incontestable. This kind of violence, what Bourdieu and Waquant have called symbolic, and others like Achille Mbembe have simply termed ne necropolitics has until recently consisted of an accepted practice within a larger system of governance in which young black men are systematically used as a premise for security and policing. The men we have increasingly seen being killed before our very eyes have long been as such, both killed and left to die routinely and quietly, largely un unquestioned and systemically uncontested by most of us. There is something new about this visibility that's, unavoid uh, that's unavoidable. We've heard the director of the FBI stating publicly that the protests and new scrutiny of police by citizens, and particularly by the black community, is hindering the police from doing their job. We've also seen Barack Obama argue for more body-worn cameras on police as a policy solution to be used ubiquitously at street level as a means to keep tabs on police who go too far. But none of what is happening suggests that systemic change is actually occurring. In fact, we're increasingly witnessing the political realm adapting to these new pressures by doubling down on control of images and evidence, messagery, and hiding behind what is undoubtedly a systemic problem that, is, that, is, uh, that has been seen 
or sorry, that has seen few of the police involved in the killings of Freddie Gray, Walter Scott, or Eric Garner held responsible. What's key too is that this new push towards transparency as an ideal contains many assumptions and consequences. For the purpose of this talk, I want to point out two very significant ones. First, transparency as a solution proposes that more democracy will solve the problems of a perceived lack of democracy. The darkness that sunlight will disinfect is a darkness of democracy and not of a range of other factors and considerations spanning from historic to contemporary, from the legacies of, slav of slavery to the wedges of capitalism. Second, transparency assumes that all that is invisible and assumed in terms of structural and systemic violence globally is suitable for discussion and visibility by all publics globally. When we do see these forms of violence that have been made invisible by local patterns of governance, we will be willing to see it and to do something about it and not just close the computer and turn away. Moreover, when that violence comes in ways that twist our sense of security, we will be open to reflecting about what it means. In some, I think something is happening, but it might not be all that different than what we have now. Let me pivot to Brazil. Police in the city of Sao Paulo kill 2.4 people per day on average. In other Brazilian cities, this violence is much higher, but not as well documented. The police in the world's next Olympic city, Rio de Janeiro, quite possibly kill three or four people per day. Last week, at a presentation here in London, a representative of the military police from Rio de Janeiro presented a slide about tracking ammunition of police. In that slide, he related that a number of street-level police shoot upwards of 300 mil mil military-grade rounds a year. Uh, many others shoot 20, 30, 40 guns, 40 bullets a year. But to anyone who lives or studies Brazil, this is really nothing new. Brazilians and Brazil scholars have documented police violence for decades, tracking its historical lineage back centuries. More importantly, in Brazilian cities today, the routine killing of young, often Afro-Brazilian men <coughs> goes largely uncontested. This is again part of a long assumed historical practice that has been made largely invisible under local practices of governance, except to those who are forced to see it and to live with the insecurity of the ongoing possibility of it happening today or tomorrow. That there is such an equity in which lives are expendable is made clear not only by the mundane act of killing by both police and others, but also in common tropes that circulate and signal such a point, like the bala perjida, the lost bullet. That bullet belongs somewhere, is the idea. The police violence of Brazil is conceptually the same as the violence suffered by Freddie Gray, Walter Scott, and Eric Garner. It's a violence that has been made normal, is systemically legitimated, being built into institutions and norms. But this violence in Brazil exists at a scale that is un unimaginable to those who live in New York or Baltimore. Quite literally, bodies pile up in the morgues every single day. It rarely makes the news. We're able to discuss it only when it captures public attention. This means when someone who might not have deserved it suffered the fate. As in Baltimore, transparency has given us some new visibility of this violence. Last week, we saw a video of a civil police crew hoisting the lifeless body of Igor Firmino da Silva into the back of a truck in Mare, a favela complex in Rio. Last year, we saw a video taken in the aftermath of police shooting 10-year-old Eduardo Jesus. Discussion of this violence always involves a debate about whether the victim was somehow deserving. 
But whether the victim was, was a banjido or not is part of the point. As I document at length in my recent book, if a victim can be loosely slotted into that category of being a criminal, the category itself lives on as a justification for the need for this type of violence. So to those interested in the prospects of new technology and transparency, much of the focus in Brazil and discussion has rightly been on the visibility of police violence and on the potential for that visibility to act as a deterrent for police that might commit this kind of violence. The New York Times, The Guardian, and many others have published long stories about citizen efforts to document this violence, to use the violence of police against them as a kind of sunlight. But the story of violence and security in Brazil is very complex. Year over year, police kill and are killed. In 2012, the last year of my previous research project, 106 police were assassinated in Sao Paulo alone. This is inseparable from a larger picture that we know very well from scholarship and NGOs. Brazilian cities are sites of a great deal of ongoing and mundane violent confrontation. Police are only one part of that picture. Whether we speak of the Comando Vermelho, Amigos dos Amigos, or the Milicias of Rio, or the Primeiro Comando da Capital in Sao Paulo, and spreading rapidly elsewhere, the practice of policing occurs under a different, different empirical paradigm. This is a circumstance where police are much more likely to hide, to dry their uniform behind the fridge, to go home to flee the violence, as they are to actively pursue it or engage with it. This is also a circumstance where police grow up in the same neighborhoods and with the same types that they're asked to police violently. As I wrote recently for an Oxford blog post, police come from populations that are systemically abandoned. They struggle to leave it. As one police detective once told me quite starkly, we were so poor that when someone in the neighborhood died, my grandmother was the first on the doorstep to ask for their clothes. Occasionally, this is made raw. In Rio de Janeiro, late last year, a police officer from a UPP unit, a community police unit created to secure some favelas in advance of the Olympics, was captured in a drug trafficker-controlled favela in the north side of the city. He was tortured, burned alive, and dragged through the streets, apparently by members of the trafficking group. Though this case proved very evocative, the banality of police assassination denotes a circumstance where, if you die as a policeman, your immediate superior might come to your funeral. If, if it is, after all, and, and it is just after all, as easy to assume that you did something to deserve what happened. I don't say this to try to turn police into victims. I argue at length elsewhere that the practices of police uh, and, and other groups like the PCC, as well as extrajudicial, squad, extrajudicial squads, are systemically interconnected. Like many, they are victim perpetrators enmeshed in a logic that dramatically defies basic notions of policing, of the state, and of the possibility of security in the longer term. There is a consensus on who may live and who can die carried out as much by organized crime groups as by the state as we know it. The blame for letting, poor poor, for letting the poor kill the poor as a sacrifice for the larger sphere of security lies elsewhere, easily obscured by the relative absence of criminality in certain parts of society. Just as this complex system of policing exists, it increasingly exists on the internet, of course, made transparent through new technologies. 
I want to tell you a story about how this, is, how this happened from my last research project. So when I was doing this research project in Sao Paulo, um, the homicide detectives that I was following around were responsible for two different kinds of investigations. On the one hand, they were investigating the homicide, the routine homicide that happens in the city, uh, which has its own normal patterns, uh, perceptions of who, who is a victim and who is a perpetrator, but they were also responsible for investigating the police that were shooting people at this rate of 2.4 times a day. Um, what was common during my research at that time and which shifted was that there was a kind of a rotten paradox that police would routinely shoot somebody and the next step was to pick them up, put them in the car, and drive them to the hospital. So you had this very difficult paradox between trying to kill or harm and then trying to save. Um, and it was very problematic. There, was, there were some, uh, some statistics at the time from Human Rights Watch which said that in 2012, 579 people were driven to the hospital by the military police in the city of Sao Paulo. And of those 579, 560 of them died before they got to the hospital. Now, just that part of the story really doesn't tell us that much. When the homicide detectives would talk about this practice, this practice of shooting and saving, they would say, well, what's assumed is that they put them in the car and then they take a long and circuitous route to the hospital to try to get to the point that the person will actually end up dead. Uh, and one of the reasons they do that is that they don't have to use other forms of violence, a way to obscure the desire that they have for, for, um, for the person to die. Um, what happened right at the end of my research, and I wasn't around long enough to get a real sense of it, was that the, the public security secretary recognized that there was something quite problematic about this and decided to make a dramatic shift. And what they did was they switched policies. And this policy shift uh, made a demarcation that no longer could police, after shooting somebody, pick them up and put them in the car and drive them to the hospital. Instead, what they had to do was call the emergency line and wait for an ambulance to come to the scene to pick up the person. Part of the logic was, was largely that it wasn't just you know, moving somebody and they were likely to, to die on the way to the hospital. That's a routine practice that's quite normal and the, the fatality of that, of, that, of that action, but rather that in the process of moving somebody, whether they're dead or not, they're changing the crime scene so that they can't actually be investigated in any meaningful way by the homicide detectives. So the logic of this policy shift was we leave the person there, wait for the ambulance to come. The scene is not, is not trampled on. There aren't people all over the place. And somehow we can, we can undertake a more systematic <coughs> investigation of what is going on. That all sounded really great. Um, what happened was something that they did not expect. And that was that when police were faced with people dying in front of them, what many of them started to do was take out their phones and start filming them as they're dying on the street. And what I'm trying to point to here is the fact that this is exactly the type of thing 
humiliation, discussion that would have happened inside the police car, but with this new kind of technology had been made visible in different kinds of ways. Um, so just to transition, I'm going to show a couple of, of images here. This is an image that came across my Facebook wall after I was putting my son to bed one evening. Um, it's the first video I saw of the aftermath of a police shooting. Um, I'm going to recount basically what the, the actual video, because this is a video, um, relates. So the camera quickly focuses on a young man's yellowing face, his mouth agape, his eyes open and staring up at the sky. A chest-sized uh, chest red Abercrombie and Finch logo emblazoned across his gray hooded sweatshirt. His shirt has shifted upwards, exposing his, exposing his midsection. A police radio chirps recognizably in the background. It takes a close look to see that the man is still moving, but only enough to gasp inaudibly. Resting on his listless arm is an open hand with a gold band on its ring finger. The camera pans down the man's body, revealing that the hand belongs to a second man lying beside the first. He groans and clasps at the first man while lying on the, on the edge of a curb on the broken asphalt of a street. Both men, the viewer now sees, have been riddled with bullets, their wounds bleeding openly and visibly into the gutter. For what seems like an eon, the second man gasps, groans, and tries to speak, while an invisible hand holds the camera stoically over his face, his body, and the bleeding bullet wounds on the bare skin of his stomach. And then, a clear voice breaks the relative silence. You're going to be famous, you thief, dying here. Seconds later, the man manages to utter two, two words, amidst moans, my children. Then a third voice from the background, this piece of shit won't die, man. And again, the clear voice, are you going to take a long time to die, damn it? As if the video is not enough of a sight, the page on which it is posted also displayed a series of photos of the scene, now obviously a police shooting on the west side of the city of Sao Paulo. The photos capture the police cars as well as the faces and precinct numbers of police officers purportedly involved in the shooting. Alongside the video are a stream of hundreds of comments that seem to alternate between hopeful types of questions, did he die, to assertions like burn in hell, I like it when they suffer, and congratulations on a job well done. By the time I took a screenshot of it, the video had been shared more than 700 times. Long violent amidst violence, Brazilian police have taken to filming their video, filming their violence firsthand. In Sao Paulo and other cities, police have started to upload images and videos of the moments following routine shootings. Capturing instances like this and posting them on social media sites like Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. In fact, this new genre of video has developed so far as to spawn recognizable subgenres that relate to everyday policing and its ugly discontents, to ongoing battles with organized crime groups and other aspects. I've started to catalog many of these images. In doing so, I've been able to identify some simple categories, such as videos taken in the aftermath of otherwise routine police shootings deemed legitimate of supposed criminals, like this image here, videos in which police humiliate or hit people they may or may not have detained, videos taken by police that force purported criminals to commit violent acts against one another, and last, uh, but uh, many others, videos that target members of organized crime groups. Um, 
Of course, it isn't always clear that police themselves are filming these videos. I'm drawing from tropes and language, from my ethnography, and evidence from various images to, take, uh, to make this point. But there's something tricky here. If, if it is police making these videos, why, why are they doing this? This kind of act is not something that police in the UK or the United States would or could do or could ever get away with. I want to argue that we cannot separate the why here from the normative context in which it's taking place. That is, of an ongoing low-level violence between police and real or perceived members of organized crime. This is especially borne out in the first, the shootings of people, and the fourth categories um, uh, that these pictures show here, which are images where police are forcing people with tattoos of jokers or clowns to scrape them off their shoulders, legs, backs, and arms with bits of brick, knives, or whatever else they can find. The point is that the clown is deeply significant. For police, that someone would have a clown tattoo demarcates them as deserving of such violence, if not much worse. The clown tattoo is an image that police believe is used by people who have killed a police officer. Widely used on social media, including on Twitter and Facebook profiles of admitted organized crime members, the clown is symbolic, a representation of the ongoing vulnerabilities of being a police officer. Though these images may seem so, they're not really a fringe concern. They're increasingly part of a much larger political logic. The generation, circulation, and consumption of these videos by a corpus of police and police sympathizers those associated with them or politically aligned serves to connect and consolidate lived experiences of violence in otherwise geographically distant locations of cities and their peripheries, generating and expanding a digital field built upon real-world real world identities and politics. This constituency positions, um, <clears throat> this constituency is also in the, in the peripheries and favelas of cities and sees itself in contrast to its perceived opposite, criminals and organized crime. It espouses unapologetically, a good criminal is a dead criminal. So seen from this kind of location, the sharing of these images in vivid detail suggests that there's a common sensation of insecurity fleetingly being overcome. The callousness of commentary and of the police recording scenes in the flesh is repeated in hundreds of thousands of likes and shares. But it's upon this category of the criminal or the bandido that this new politics is being built. Brazil's most recent elections provided voters with an unprecedented suite of hardline security candidates. And security as political platform has become the realm of mostly former police officers. In Sao Paulo, the former head of, of the city's notorious SWAT-like uh, unit, the Huata, garnered the second most votes of any state senator, 254,000 votes. Both candidates that have and have not been elected appropriate the symbolism and the logic of violent policing. In their online presence, they routinely post videos of police with guns, of dramatic car chases, and images of police vulnerability, such as cars that have been shot up, and obituaries of fallen police. Behind them, many shadow groups have sprung up, operating at arm's length, but displaying much of the more detailed, iconic, and emotional images and video consumed by this constituency. In this light, it's hard not to see police images as a form of protest. It's a kind of protest that is happening 
through a constituency grounded in an empirical concern. And it's now happening democratically through formal channels and with a suite of actors that espouse a set of ideas and a platform. These are, of course, strange to liberal, liberal sensitivities. They defy hegemonic Western normative democracy, any ideas of a civil society or of human rights. Much less is this a kind of protest that most of us would be comfortable with. Most recently, we've seen the direct effect of this new political push. Brazil's Bancada da Bala, or Bullet Caucus, made up of former police and military figures, was at the forefront of new efforts to reduce the penal age from 18 to 16, or even lower if possible. This push to deal with the, with the perception that juveniles use the shelter of the Estatuto da Criança, the children's statute, or other UN modeled, modeled guidelines for the treatment of children in prison is in many ways a direct pushback at the forces of Western normative liberal democracy. But I want to bring this back to transparency and leave lots of time for discussion. Where are we now? New technologies have given us visibility of a great deal of new things, that police themselves could document their working conditions in such a way is quite a logical use of these new platforms. People populate Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram with content that is meaningful to them, no matter how, but perhaps especially how violent it is. This is, of course, very much contextually informed. This is, a, this is part of a larger project, a book project that I'm working on, which, which is three different parts. And I want to I wanna leave, um, leave this here so we can discuss this because I'm very much interested in the feedback, um, that I think there are two larger concerns that emerge from a conclusion or a discussion about these kinds of images potentially being uh, part of a larger uh, force of protest. One is that what are the ways in which these very organized um, crime groups are themselves organizing, protesting, or becoming political in spite of states? That is, not in democratic dialogue, but in other ways. And two, what do people like Mark Zuckerberg think of this form of sunlight, of posting these type of imageries on Facebook or Twitter or YouTube? And what might the consequences be of of a distaste for these type of imageries, imageries on Facebook B for local political discussion in Brazil. Thank you.